I, was, I stepped out of my house and I walked across the way to come over here. And for a moment, it was interesting because it was really quiet. You ever notice sometimes when it snows, it, it feels like the world stops. And I didn't hear 41 traffic. I didn't, it was just quiet. And I, I was like, man, maybe that's why we dream of white Christmases. Because Christmas is a time for silent nights and peace on earth and goodwill to men. But if you were here last week, Pastor Steve annihilated our nostalgic picture of Christmas. He destroyed it. Norman Rockwell was turning over in his grave. We were in Revelation chapter 12 last week. We'll continue there this morning. But we saw that behind the peaceful serenity of Christmas, there is much, much more going on. So go ahead and turn there with me. Revelation chapter 12. Very interesting passage for Christmas time, is it not? Revelation chapter 12. It's the last book in the Bible. So if you flip all the way to the back, right before the index, uh, you'll find the book of Revelation. Look for the big number 12. That's chapter 12, and we're going to be in verse 7 soon. But last week we looked at verses 1 through 6, and we saw a most peculiar scene, didn't we? I'll catch you up. There was this lady, this magnificent lady, who is clothed with the sun. She stands on the moon. And she has this crown of 12 stars representing God's people. Old Testament Israel, 12 tribes. And she is pregnant. She is very, very pregnant. In fact, she's just about ready to give birth. And she's going to give birth to a boy. Not just any boy. But a boy, according to the text, who will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So this is the Messiah. This is Jesus Christ, the King of all kings. So the birth of Messiah, that's Christmas, right? So far, so good. But then, as you look at the passage, there's this shadow that comes over the scene, right? And we realize that there's somebody else at the nativity scene. A red, giant, bloodthirsty dragon. Well, there goes my normal picture of Christmas, right? And he's there for one reason, one reason alone, and that is to devour baby Jesus. In our text today, we find out it's Satan, I think we can safely say from last week's text that Satan is the most anti-Christmas being in the entire universe. Right? He's ready to gobble up baby Jesus. And this scene in Revelation 12 is quite spine-tingling. And some of you are, might have walked in here today and you're like, I came to hear the kids' choir. What in the world did I step into? Dragons and Christmas? Uh, we could have titled the sermon last week, Silent Night, Holy Terror. Or, or we could have, uh, Pastor Dexter said this week, maybe we should have called it Christmas in Jurassic Park. But I promise you, we will get to some, some hope a little later. We're going to get to some really good Christmas hope, okay? So in our text here, here's Satan. He's the red dragon. He's ready to crush all Christmas hopes. Yet what happens? God protects the baby. God takes the baby away. And, and John, the author of Revelation, he skips right from the birth of Jesus directly to the ascension, boom, right like that. But it, it becomes, you know, clear as we look at this text, this woman still remains. She continues to be featured in the, in the story. And so even though Jesus has ascended, the woman remains. So who is this? Is it truly Israel? Well, we discover by the end of the chapter that it's not just Old Testament Israel, but it's the church who's been grafted into Israel. It's all of God's people right now who this dragon is coming after. 
So the woman, symbolizing God's people, has fled into the wilderness. That's where we left her last week. And so let's get back to it. Let's see what happens. Verse 7, look at it with me, Revelation 12. And I'm just going to read verses 7, 8, and 9 here to start with. So Revelation 12, verse 7, 8, and 9. We want to stop at 9. We don't want to go to 10 yet, okay? So here we go. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. Let's stop right there. Okay, let's stop there. By the way, I heard after the first service that one of the boys who sat in the, in the auditorium, every time I said dragon, he went, <gasps> So I'm going to see how many times I can say the word dragon today, okay? See if keep the kids engaged. But notice in, in our scriptures here that this, uh, this starts to tell us about Satan's fury, the dragon's fury. His attempts to devour the baby Jesus have been unsuccessful. In fact, Satan's attempts always have been unsuccessful to stamp out God's people. Last week, Pastor Steve shared a few of many examples that we could look at where that the people of Israel were targeted, were persecuted, or how the church today is targeted and persecuted because Satan hates God's people. And so he keeps coming back time and time again. He is relentless. You have to give him an A for effort, although I don't think Satan ever gets A's. He's straight F's. But Satan just keeps coming back. He's relentless. He just keeps going. Even though he knows he's defeated, right? And he is not successful, verse 7, because God's power dwarfs Satan's power. And look at the text in verse 7. We, we see the reason Satan was futile is because Michael and his angels, the archangels, they are fighting against the dragon. And there's this battle that's raging, this cosmic battle in the heavenlies. And at one point, this battle was in the heavenlies. It was in heaven. When we study scripture, we learn Satan's origin was actually heaven. Did you know that? His original name was Lucifer, which means the shining one or the light bringer. And according to scripture, Satan, Lucifer, was one of the most magnificent beings ever created until he became puffed up with pride and he wanted God's job. He wanted to be equal with God. And so he lost his prominence in heaven. He took a host of angels down with him but according to what we read here and in the book of Job, we discover Satan was still allowed to come into heaven certain times. I don't know how often or, or when, but he was allowed entrance into the heavenlies to go before God. Mostly he accused believers, but he was allowed in that sphere for a while. And then God said, enough, you're banished from heaven. No more allowed to come in God's presence, confined to earth. You see, Satan, he wanted a, a heavenly promotion. He got a big, fat pink slip. Cast out of heaven, fired, gone. And it's really imperative for us to realize and remember today, and I want you to hear this, that Satan has lost the battle in heaven. Amen? That's really good. That's really good because there is one place in the universe right now where Satan cannot go. He has no ability to go in and to perturb it would be easier 
for a terrorist strapped with machine guns to stroll into the White House than for Satan to breach the gates of heaven. He cannot go there. He is confined only to earth. And guess what? If you're in Jesus Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, that's where you're going. You're going to that place where Satan cannot come, where Satan cannot tempt you, where there is no more dying, no more suffering, no more sin. See, that's good news, that there is at least one place right now where Satan has lost the battle. This is a place of peace, goodwill toward men. Maybe white Christmas is, I don't know. <laughs> but I know it's a place of perfection, okay? Here's what happened. Satan was in heaven, cast out, and now the battle is on earth. You notice from the, the text, now he's on earth. And, and here's the thing. Satan knows he's lost. He knows he lost the battle in heaven. And he knows he's losing the battle on earth. But he's not going to go down without a knockdown, drag out fight. And so the battle ensues on earth. Look at verse 12 through 17 with me. We're going to skip past 10 and 11 for now. But let's read 12 through 17. Revelation 12, 12 through 17. Let's see how the battle has gone from heaven now to earth. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Why are they rejoicing? They're rejoicing because Satan is gone. But notice it says, But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. That's three and a half years. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of, his, of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So now Satan has been relegated to earth, kicked out of heaven confined here. And so his fury is going through the roof. I mean, he is foaming at the mouth. He is spitting blood. He is angry. Maybe a good illustration for this that'll get your mind spinning would be, let's say that there was a great white shark off the Atlantic Ocean. I've seen those before on the East Coast. Let's say that some brilliant divers decided to capture that great white shark and move him to Northwest Indiana and put him in a swimming pool, your swimming pool. And there's where he Reside. Do you think he'd be happy being confined to a small little swimming pool after being free to roam to eat whatever he wanted? Are you going to get in that swimming pool with him? I'm not. One of the kids shouted out for a service, not me. <laughs> I'm not getting in there. Here's this furious dragon who is confined to a space that he's never been confined to before, and he is angry. They say that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. What about a dragon who's been scorned? That's, that's wrath. Look at verse 12. It says that he has megasthumas. That means mega explosive wrath is what he has. I don't want to mess with that. I mean, this is how angry the dragon is. Hence the spewing river of evil that he, he, he throws at the woman. 
And we can understand how the dragon channels his fury. How does he attack the woman? We can figure some of that out by looking at the text and seeing the various names that John uses for Satan. So I want you to look at these. If you want to, you can underline them in the text. But he tells us a lot about this dragon, just from the names that he uses all throughout the text. First, he calls him in verse 9, the ancient serpent. The ancient serpent, which of course harkens back to Genesis 3. And we find that this dragon is the old-time enemy of God who is guilty of the first sin and the first temptation, disturbing a perfect, serene garden. You want to talk about peace on earth? That was Eden. But the ancient serpent slithered in and he tempted and he caused a ruckus and he has been causing a ruckus ever since. And the scriptures say here in verse 9, he's deceiving the whole world. That's what he's been doing ever since the garden. The dragon is a deceiver. You can underline that too. He's a deceiver. Satan deceived Eve. Just like Satan deceives us, he promises us real pleasure. He whispers in our ear and he causes us to doubt God's goodness. He causes us to doubt God's wisdom. He says what he said to Eve. Did God really say Or is God really concerned for your best interest? Does God really want you to be happy? This is the kind of thing he does. And and, and what he does is he twists true beauty. He takes beauty, true beauty, and he twists it. He disfigures it. And here's the craziest part of all. He blinds our eyes to that deformity. We can't see that it's deformed. We still see it as beautiful. What Satan is tempting us with seems really beautiful, but he's distorted it, he's twisted it, he's made it disfigured. All we see is freedom and we're walking into slavery. The dragon is the ancient serpent. He is a deceiver. And in verse 9 and verse 12, he's also called the devil. So we're learning about this dragon. He's the deceiver, right? He's the ancient serpent. He is the devil. And the word devil, it means essentially one who divides Isn't that what Satan loves to do? He loves to divide people. He loves to divide and destroy relationships. The devil couldn't handle the fact that Adam and Eve were in the garden in this perfect communion with God, enjoying that. That drove him insane. I can't have this. He comes in, he divides. Because Adam and Eve, they're they're experiencing true peace on earth. As 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 the Old Testament uses the word shalom, wholeness completeness, life the way it was meant to be, shalom. And he can't have that. He hates that. He comes and he divides. The devil can't stand peace. The devil can't stand a godly marriage. He can't stand it. He's going to divide and conquer and he's going to destroy. He can't stand when kids, when children say, I'm going to submit myself to my parents. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. The devil can't stand that. He likes to divide. The devil can't stand a church that maintains unity. He hates that. So he tries to weasel his way in there and divide. And the way that Satan tries to divide often is he accuses. He is the accuser, verse 10. The accuser. He accuses day and he accuses night. He accuses man. He accuses God. Remember how he accused Job? If you read the book of Job, he came before God and he said, Have you seen Job? Yeah, sure, he loves you, but he loves you because of all the stuff you've given him. You take that away, he's going to curse you. And so Job is attacked by Satan. He is accused by Satan. And I was thinking this week, I bet Satan still tries that. 
Now, he can't go into the heavenlies. Thank the Lord he can't go right before the throne of God anymore. He's been banished. But I can just picture him, you know, somewhere. Every time we disobey God, every time that we struggle or we falter, I can see him, you know, lifting his voice up, up to the heavens and saying, yeah, look at your child. You know, they don't really love you. It's just a joke. And, and this week, for the, maybe the, one of the first times in a long time, I imagine that for myself. I, I got personal. So, you know, what if Satan's accusing me for the times that I disobey God? It's kind of sobering, right? I, I said to myself, I, I want to stop giving Satan ammunition. You know, I, I want Satan to be grasping at straws, trying to find some way to accuse me, just like he did with Job. Last name I want to look at, the one we use most often for this dragon, is the, the name Satan. And John uses it in verse 9. Notice he calls him Satan. This is the name that sums it all up, actually. Because Satan means adversary or enemy. The dragon is the enemy of God and all that associate with him. And, and here's what happens. Since the dragon cannot perturb Jesus, he can't touch Jesus. Jesus has ascended into heaven. He's at the right throne, right hand of the throne of God. Since he can't do that, he's going to do the next best thing. He's going to bombard those that are most closely associated with Jesus Christ. He's going to come after those that look like Jesus, that sound like Jesus, that smell like Jesus. The dragon lost the trail of the Messiah's sent a long time ago, but he picks it back up on everyone who is a little Christ, everyone who is a Christian. And so the hunt continues and he comes after us. First Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. A lion, a dragon. I mean, these are scary images, right? So what does this mean for us? Are we to live in paralyzing fear? Are we to go home and go, Merry Christmas, I'm so scared of the dragon. By no means. We finished the, the passage this morning by looking at the heart, which is a conquering Christmas message. There is hope in this passage, conquering the dragon's fury. How does that happen? How do we conquer the dragon? Well, let's look at verse 10 and 11. Let's read those together. Very, very powerful. Look, look and read along with me as I read. And I, John is writing this, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Look at verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Yes, the dragon is filled with fury. Yes, he's a beast. Yes, he accuses and he separates and he pursues and he deceives, but he is no match for the salvation and the power and the kingdom and the authority of Jesus Christ. I want to look here at how we conquer this furious dragon. How do we, how do, we do that? And I use that word conquer very intentionally. In some of your Bibles, in the NIV, I believe, the NASB maybe, it's the word overcome, overcomer. And it really is a key word in the book of Revelation. I, I believe it's the key word that, that helps us understand what Revelation is about. You can see it all throughout the text um, th from Revelation, the beginning, chapter 2, all the way to the end. I'll, I'll just flip back to myself here to chapter 2. You can do so if you want in your scriptures. But I mean, I've, I've 
boxed off every time I see the word in the ESV anyway, conquered or conqueror, because it is a beautiful aspect of this book. So in Revelation 2, I'm just looking at here, verse 7, it says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. And you go down to verse 11 and you say, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And then verse 17, the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives. I could go on and on throughout the whole book. 17 times this word is used, conquering, conquer or conqueror. How do we conquer this great dragon? Is it possible? Yes, it is. First, by trusting in the ultimate protection by God. First, we trust in the ultimate protection by God. Verse 6, chapter 12, and verse 14. God protects his own. He protects his people. Verse 14 is a retelling of verse 6. So if you look at those two, it's essentially the same thing, just helping us understand it. And man, something spectacular has happened in here. Did you notice in verse 14? God's people were given wings of the eagle to escape the clutches of the dragon. I mean, this whole chapter reads like a thrilling movie, doesn't it? Rated R movie, but a thrilling movie all the same. I mean, it's exciting. Just at the moment when the dragon is going to pounce on the woman, she's given these great eagle wings and she flies away from the dragon and off to safety. God's people are given ease. They're given speed of flight. They're giving divine deliverance and enablement. Now I know somebody in here, somebody is saying, oh, Pastor Mark, I really hope you tell us what the wings are and what the years mean and, and what, it all. I'm not gonna do that today. I'm just gonna focus on the big idea. There's a lot of different ideas out there. I've heard that the wings are the Old and New Testament. I don't know about that, you know. I think maybe it's the Holy Spirit, you know, in the church. I don't know, maybe. The point is the same, is that the dragon is after the woman. The dragon, Satan, loves to destroy God's people, and God gives protection. God gives enablement so that we escape the clutches of the dragon. I want you to look at verse 14 while I read another text for you. So if you have your Bible, just look at verse 14. Notice what it says. I'm going to read Exodus 19.4. This is God speaking to the Israelites, and he says this, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And there's a lot of uh, parallels here between what's happening, whatever time this is, and the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. So certainly this is in John's mind as he's writing. He's writing, thinking about Israel escaping the enemy, escaping Satan, and how God does the same thing for us. And remember, where did the children of Israel go when God took them away from Egypt, when he, he, he picked them up with eagle's wings and he took them to himself? Where did he take them? He took them into the wilderness, right? He took them into the wilderness just like this text is talking about. We hear the word wilderness and we think negative thoughts usually, right? Just like the way that some of you think about camping. You say, well, you, you know, you're going to go into the woods and you're going to, Live like people did 200 years ago without technology? Are you crazy? Why would you do that? Well, the wilderness can also be a peaceful and a refreshing thing. It often is in biblical terms. If you notice, God often takes his people away, away from the metropolis, away from the urban setting, away from the city, into a place where he refreshes them, where they spend time with him. This happened for Moses. This happened for Israel. 
This is not a pitch to go camping, by the way. I'm just saying God does this with his people, okay? He takes them into the wilderness. Jesus himself went into the wilderness to pray. So I know that originally you, you think wilderness, oh, terrible thing. Well, in this case, God is, is refreshing. God is protecting. And we, as God's people, we have to trust in the plan of God. We have to trust in what God does because oftentimes God takes us away from all that is comfortable and convenient and sophisticated. Why? So that we'll rely on him. So that we will depend on him. Verse 6, remember, God prepares a place. He knows what he's doing. Some of you in here might feel like you're in a wilderness right now. You feel like your life is just dry. Like what, what is God doing? Why has he brought me into this season of life, could it be that your wilderness is part of the protection and the nourishment of God? Now hear me out, because some of you are like, no, definitely not. Like, there's no way that wilderness I'm going through, it's God's refreshing. I don't feel very refreshed right now. Well, I don't know, but maybe, maybe the dragon was starting to lull you to sleep. Satan was attacking you. You didn't see it. Maybe you were in a comfort zone, whatever, but you just didn't see the attacks of Satan. And just before he could pounce on you, God took you, he removed you from that situation, and he carried you into a time of struggle, into a time of wilderness. He picked you up on eagle's wings. He brought you into a time when you're going to have to depend on him. Yeah, you're going to face some tough times, just like the children of Israel did. If If you talk to the children of Israel while they're wandering in the wilderness, they said, yeah, I'm refreshed. This is really, this is great. But that's what God did. He took them away, away from the enemy. May I remind us of the context of the book of Revelation? Because I think it's easy sometimes to preach a message like this and for us as American Christians to go right to, yeah, that's right, upward and onward, health and wealth. You know, I think of Isaiah 40, 31 as I read this text, right? They that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. Remember that text? I mean, when I was reading here, I thought of that. But remember the original readers in the first century, they're they're reading John's words and they're facing persecution. They're facing martyrdom. They're facing death. And so some of the people who conquered the dragon, who escaped the dragon, did so through death, in suffering. That's why we trust in the ultimate protection of God, right? Ultimately, he is protecting us. Ultimately, we're going to end up in heaven where Satan cannot get us, where the dragon has no business coming. And so, you know, as we go through trials, as we deal with loved ones who have cancer, as we face struggles of all different sorts, we, we cast our eyes upon the ultimate protection, the ultimate divine deliverance, because we will be delivered one day. Ultimately, we are conquerors, and we conquer when we, number two, live in the already victory of Jesus. Live in the already victory of Jesus. As as you read this scripture, there are some really illustrious characters in this narrative, right? It's a pretty exciting story. I actually heard a family tell me they're going to go, and that family time this Christmas, they're going to retell the story, including the dragon. That's really interesting, you know, because it's very... It's very illustrious. We've, we've met the dragon and we've met the woman. But Jesus is the great hero of this story. Jesus is the dragon slayer. And this is the real joy of Christmas. 
Maybe before this series, you, you didn't realize that, but this is the real joy of Christmas, that the dragon slayer is born. You know, not that there's just a really great man that was born, not a, a great teacher that was born, a wise sage. On this day, we remember the birthday of this great hero. Well, there's a lot of people that we celebrate their birthdays because they're famous people, because they made a difference in our world. But when we come to Christmas, we are remembering the birthday of the only one who could quench the fiery fury of the terrible dragon. That's what Christmas is. So even through the white Christmases and the, and the mistletoe and the eggnog and all that kind of stuff, we got to remember what's actually going on here. This baby is the dragon slayer. For millennia, humanity waited for a deliverer. They longed for a deliverer. Darkness hovered over the earth and the dragon continued to destroy. And in one great moment, a tender and a beautiful baby was born. And like all babies, he was precious and he was fragile, but do not be fooled by appearances. This is a warrior. This is a dragon slayer, one who would fight the dragon head on, and though the dragon would strike his heel, and though his hands would bear the scars, he'd plunge a sword right into that dragon's head and so trigger the beginning of the end. Even now, right now, Satan is spiraling down. You know, so let's get the right picture here. Yes, Satan is a dragon. Yes, Satan is terrible and fierce. But he's going down right now. He's on his way down. He's spiraling down. And verse 12 tells us that he knows that his time is short. He knows that. And so as he's going down, he's reaching. He's trying to grab whoever he can, bring them with him, because he is on his way down. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Richard Buse said this, Christians are not working towards victory, but from a victory already achieved. This is key for us. We've got to understand what's going on. We don't need to worry about accomplishing the victory. We don't have to worry about being the dragon slayer and slaying the dragon. You know, if I, if I just live a good life, if I just try to be a good person, hopefully in the end I will, I'll be good enough to get into heaven. No, the dragon's already been defeated. Jesus Christ has done it. He died on the cross. The Bible says, he said, it is finished. Price has been paid for your sin if you trust in Jesus Christ. You don't have to fight the dragon. It's done. But we live in that victory. Jesus won it and now we live in the victory. Maybe this will help you understand it. You know, when we talk about sports teams, we, we often say, we won, right? Like, how many of you, when the Cubs won the World Series, said, we won? Anyone? Probably a few of you, right? Um, my, uh, my team, the Eagles, you know, Philadelphia Eagles, are doing pretty well this year. We are doing pretty well. What did I do? I moved away from the area and they started doing well. So we, we do nothing we, we do nothing. My wife often says, Mark, until you get a paycheck from them, you can't say we. Okay, yeah, I guess so. But we ride on their coattails. We, we, vicariously, we live through that team. We say their victory is our victory, right, for the town, for the city. And, and so with Jesus Christ, he's already won the victory. It wasn't our battle that we fought. It was Christ's. But we share in that victory. He has shared the spoils, the Bible says. And so 
We are victorious as so much as we are in Jesus Christ. We are victorious as we identify with him. So I want to make it really clear this morning. How do you identify with Jesus? I don't want that to be muddy at all. I want it to be super, super clear. How do you identify with this dragon slayer? Is it just, you know, coming to church today, coming Christmas Eve, participating? Is that how you identify with Christ? No. According to Scripture, you identify with Christ when you decide to put all of your hope and all of your trust and give your heart to Christ and say, Jesus, I'm trusting in what you did on that cross. I can't do it. I can't beat the dragon. I can't win the victory over my sin. I trust in what you did on that cross because you are God and you are perfect and you are the only God-man. And we decide to follow Jesus in discipleship. We say, I'm, I'm going your way, Jesus, whatever that means, wilderness or not, I'm following you. I'm with you. That's how we identify with Jesus. That, that's what baptism is all about, right? The picture, baptism is a picture of identifying with Christ. You die with Christ, buried under the water, baptism, raised up, representing the resurrection. We're identifying with Jesus. And once we've identified with Christ, his victory is our victory. Though the dragon rage after us, and he does, we have confidence that he will never destroy us because of the one that we celebrate at Christmas, because of this great dragon slayer. So this Christmas, you know, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. But may I remind you that peace only comes through Jesus Christ. Peace only comes, according to the text, verse 11, through the blood of the Lamb. That's the only way we can have peace on earth. So I know peace is a buzzword during Christmas. Everyone wants peace. No more fighting. Families that don't fight. Yeah, right. We, we want peace. Peace only comes through the blood of Christ. That's it. Ultimate peace. Because I don't know if you noticed, but there is an epic battle going on that makes Star Wars look lame. Okay, this, this battle is raging. And we have to remember that there is a scorned dragon out there. He's not very happy. He's got this megas thumos, this really explosive wrath. And if we ignore that, if we don't take that seriously, we'll find ourselves, even as Christians, falling prey to his schemes. Not living in the victory that is already won. We must live in that victory. I'd go even further. If you want to know and experience increasing peace this Christmas season, so, so maybe you're a Christian, you say, yeah, I agree with everything you said, Pastor Mark, amen. But you want to experience even more of the peace of God during this Christmas season. It will require you to flee from the dragon, to run away from his schemes. He is a deceiver, he is an accuser, he is a separator. And you say, God, I don't want that. Take me away, rescue me, may I be nourished by you. May I focus on what Christ did for me, the already one Victory, and then you'll experience a peace that you've never experienced before. If you're struggling with a besetting sin, an addiction, one of these type of things, you need help. Probably can't do it on your own. If it's an addiction, you need help. You come talk to somebody and say, I, wanna, I just want to give it all to Christ. I want him to take me away, even if it means going into a wilderness for a while, because I want to experience the nourishment of Christ. I'm done fighting the dragon on my own. I can't do it. You want to experience peace? This Christmas, submit to Christ. So yes, have yourselves a Merry Christmas. 
But remember that that joy, that merriment, it comes through remembering the victory in Jesus. In fact, the word in verse 12, rejoice, actually can be translated merry. Be merry. Be merry because of what God has done through Christ. God has slain the dragon. That's where true peace is. The dragon is defeated. Jesus has done it.